Hi, and welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. This podcast is about the place where design and development overlap. We talk with experts to get their point of view about trends in design, code, and how it relates to the world around us. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud. If you want to get in touch with the show, ask some questions, or generally tell us what you think, go ahead and tweet us at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Stroll. I'm here with Jay Smith, who's the design lead at REI, works on the Cedar Design System. Jay, welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation because we had a moment before the show to talk about a theme. And when we talk about like what are the core things that a design system represents in terms of value, you get lots of people talking about like efficiency, or they talk about time saved, or they talk about like building better product. But almost always, people also mention the word consistency. And this is going to be a chat that is really focused on unpacking what consistency within a design system means. And so let me start out with that. When you think about the application of consistency across REI, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so if I sort of like zoom out before thinking about it within a design system context, I think about the channels that our brand and experiences show up in. And so there's digital channels, there's physical channels, we have stores. Often those things interact with each other. And so consistency of expression for that ultimate end user or customer like how are they benefiting from our work to have consistency of experience across the various touch points that they have yeah i mean i think about my relationship with rei and the channels that exist there I mean, you guys send me wonderful coupons via direct mail i have the membership and that membership sort of experience there's a little card that hangs on my keychain still And then there's a store that I frequently go to either to buy stuff from or return. There's email. So like how else would I find out about the garage sale? And then there's the shopping experience on REI.com. And I'm just one person. And those are all the different ways that it kind of like touches me. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it goes beyond just visual design as well. It's consistency of language, consistency of message. All these things are something that we think about here across those various touch points. So one of the concepts you brought up was this idea of like logical or computational consistency versus perceived consistency. And I think this is really interesting because most of the time when we think about statements like that, we put it in terms of performance, how often perceived performance, i.e. having a progress bar or spinner, is actually more important than the performance itself. It doesn't necessarily matter if you have a sub-second load time on a web page as long as you have something that lets a user know that it's loading. In a similar vein, it may not be necessarily as critical that you have something that's computationally consistent as long as it presents as consistent to a user. Unpack that for me a little bit. Like, How did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, I think consistency from a design system 101 standpoint, it's like, okay, how do these parts and pieces show up in a uniform manner across various contexts? I've started to see the system being used in ways which are more and more out of our direct purview or control and all the various sort of like dynamic experiences that can be created that you don't have the ability to sort of oversee and think about how the parts and pieces assemble themselves in a consistent way. And so now it's become more, how can you construct the various decisions that go into achieving consistency in a way that can show up in a way that is consistent for that end user, but it can't be predicted up front or seen up front. 
And I, I think that's become a very sort of interesting problem space for us right now. So to take sort of a, an old example, you used to have some piece of your design system where you were able to wrap your head around the majority of use cases for that component or that pattern that existed. And now, because of the broader adoption that you have and the complexity of things, I assume, to some degree, it's much more difficult to predict all the potential use cases for the patterns that exist in that design system. And because you can't always envision what the permutations of the end state will be, it's a lot more about defining the rules than it is about necessarily understanding all the states. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, it's like the problem now is not specific implementations and deciding what consistency of those implementations are, but can you define a model that can protect the concept of consistency for circumstances that you can't account for up front? So what does that look like in terms of a concrete example inside of Cedar? Like when you think about that application of before, hey, it was kind of like we we knew all our permutations of a button and where that button might get used, my favorite punching bag component, or now we have to have a system for understanding like how CTAs and buttons broadly work inside of the system. Is it, is it something like that? Or give me an example that, that helps hammer that home. Yeah, so one example that we're working through right now is can we define a token language that has an understanding over a, a certain sort of background type and have it be aware of the context that those tokenized decisions are living in? And then what do they do when they're applied in a different context? Like, Can they be aware of where they're living? Can they be responsive to the various containers that they live in? And like, this opens up a whole new idea for enabling things like themes and palettes to exist. We don't necessarily know. We have a good guess around like what our primary text color is going to be over a certain background type, but we don't necessarily know where that background color type is going to be used across various teams and implementations. So if we can manage that relationship, we can at least have a, a solid understanding of how it's going to show up in different contexts and be really sure about other considerations like will that relationship be accessible in context that we weren't able to predict. So how do you decide context right now? Is the context usage in a component? Is it in some sort of like higher order component where you're basically defining some grouping of other components or some nesting? Like what does that look like in terms of the structure? Yeah, so right now it's sort of a two-faceted approach. I'm very interested in defining what is the sort of core expression for REI.com, for example, and what palette sets are most appropriate for the majority of experiences that we have. And that becomes a, a set of decisions that the system can deliver. But adjacent to that, we can also deliver to teams the framework for those decisions for them to create their own palettes and themes. So if there's a different team who wants to focus on, for example, maybe like our membership REI membership, that right now might not be something that we want to deliver at scale, but they might find useful within their team to manage and maintain a membership expression. And so we want to give them the tools to do that, knowing that someday it'll likely be that we can ingest that back into the system. So when you're thinking about that expression itself, that 
is something that can represent a static set of assets, right? Like we have an understanding of this is your palette and this is how that palette applies in that particular use case. And that that was generated by some higher order systems thinking at the core level of the design system. Are you guys doing stuff in runtime as well where you have the idea of like, I'm determining a context kind of on the fly and then changing things? Or is it all that static generation that is then used in different contexts that are more determined by the implementation? It's sort of interesting. Like We're just getting into this. And what's been really exciting for me is developing, for example, a grayscale, right? Like everybody's got a grayscale over a primary background color. And one of the bodies of work that I did was like, okay, let's look at that grayscale across three other background types. The first one is sort of secondary background, and then let's solve for the inverse of those to support something like dark mode. And with those palettes as defined, if you construct, say, a given component across your primary background and the, the token relationship is there, if, if you want to construct that component across a different background type, like the relationship is maintained. And so the expression of that is very quick to determine. And I think that's extensible. That's interesting. So the idea is, is that by designing for one set of contrasts, you're designing for a whole bunch of set of contrasts that are easy to extend into based on implementations. Yeah, exactly. And you know, one of the things that's most interesting about it is like, yeah, it's a bit more upfront work in defining four different grayscales and you know, who's defining multiple grayscales for a light mode. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like what's interesting about it is you can maintain contrast values that way and maintain the same sort of expression of type across background types through managing that grayscale, which can be automated. I see that as like this interesting asset, right? Where you have this ability to say, I have a grayscale, that grayscale has all these different contexts that it applies to. And then I have two or three or four other ones that apply in this other set of contexts. And as a result, you're able to sort of have that same visual language applied in lots of different places. So are you using the design system beyond do your print people be like, yo, give me some of that design system magic? Like, what are those hex codes for your grayscale, man? Yeah, I mean, that it might be a, a very long-term vision. I think what's important is that the model itself is scalable. And where we want to apply it first is, you know, digital commerce. Let's gain value and traction there, demonstrate performance, and then open the gate to what's next. And, you know, there's digital environments within retail stores that, you know, we'd love to extend into in the future. But just to circle back on the the idea of like managing these grayscales across different background types, you know, what else does this enable? It sort of plays into that idea of perceptual consistency. And if you have a primary type color across white, that primary type color, if you maintain the hex value on a different like let's say a, a lighter gray, it changes the perception of that color. And so I think it's more interesting to try to manage that perception of that color through this token work as a way to maintain consistency or you know cohesiveness, whatever you want to call it, across those expressions. So you said you're just getting into this. Is this something that's largely based in color right now? Or is there stuff like variable fonts or typefaces and spacing and stuff like that that you're doing as well? 
color first because that feels most useful in terms of demonstrating performance and, and impact of the model. But there are immediate use cases identified here for extending into typography. And you know, if you want to convey this as like a theme or a palette set, you can quickly get into a standard type expression for you know, REI.com and then apply that to a different context of maybe the type in this situation needs to be a different weight or a different color. I would rather manage that through palettes than have that work be done in a bespoke way. I think that the interesting part of this is the very orchestrated way you think about the system. And I think that it's also interesting because the system being the focus versus the necessary results of like, hey, it's got to be like gray on white (laughs) is great, right? Because like, yeah, you talked about grayscale, but you could apply that very broadly to nearly everything. Yeah, absolutely. Like our brand green, right? Put that over different background color types. The perception of that brand green is going to be different. And the digital space is very dynamic. The different situations that you might have a customer experiencing our brand are a wide range of different experiences. And so like, how do you design for that? And I think a, a more dynamic expression of brand is something that could be more tolerated. Like, What do you let go of in terms of control instead of pointing to a hex value and say, this is brand green? Instead, you point to a model that says, this is responsible for carrying the idea of what green means in these different contexts. Yeah, and it gets at the root of one of the big challenges I've, I've always had with palettes, right? Is that colors individually are kind of meaningless. It's one color on top of another that creates meaning. I mean, they're not totally meaningless. Like gray conveys an emotion, a feeling, a purpose and brand. But if you put it on top of brown, now all of a sudden you have a contrast that you can like understand the perception of that green. And by thinking about it always in at least a set of two, I think that's a fascinating way to think about expression because now all of a sudden your brand primary color doesn't really mean as much because it could be any number of colors. It just matters if it tells the right story based on the color it's being compared against. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're realizing that with our grayscale now where, you know, yeah, it's four different values of gray for primary type, but you put them together and they look the same. Perceptually, they're the same. And I, I think that is a more interesting design problem to solve. So this is pretty heady. How is the implementation of this how does it look? Is this like, I have 10,000 tokens? Is this a like, I have all these different sets of things that we've effectively figured out how to group them by? Like, what does that look like when you think about four different grayscales? I mean, it's really messy on the system side. Well, I wouldn't say messy. It's a lot to manage on the system side. And the sort of challenge is how can you make that as easy to use for the consumers of the design decisions? product designers and engineers, and not pass that complexity on to them. So kudos to our our engineers on the system team. It's a lot of work to manage and maintain, but ultimately, I think the design value there will be worth it. I was just thinking about a shirt that I bought from REI that is sort of like burgundy in color. And the logo representation of REI on that shirt, it's an REI-branded shirt, is, I think, orange or something like that. And I wonder, like, do you all harmonize between a brand team that is associated with applications of the brand like that versus the digital brand as well? Because, I mean, that's a substantial deviation from 
a core brand color. So this concept isn't only digital. It obviously applies elsewhere, at least in, in apparel. What does that collaboration look like? Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, it sort of opens the door to maybe some edges of where this model might not scale to for things like hard goods or soft goods. You know, when we're making a tent or making a shirt, like there are seasonal palettes developed for those things. And the cycle seasonally of how those things change is very fast. For this model in digital, I'm sort of thinking in, you know, fast and slow. What needs to be changed at a slower rate? And I think that core expression certainly needs to be a slower rate of change. And can you design in through the system a way to protect that sort of core expression and then allow for other color types maybe to move at a faster rate on top of that? An analog for you would be some sort of core brand that is slow iteration, slower moving, but then an application or an instance of that brand that could exist in a more rapid kind of environment where it could change seasonally or could change based on a specific application of that palette. Yeah, and this sort of gets into our sort of contradictory, almost mandate in a way, or this conceptual idea of a mandate for the system, which is how do you enable teams to rapidly experiment but at the same time support consistency of expression. Like, How do you do both of those things well? Because you can over-index on either. If you have teams doing experimentation, eventually you'll see patterns emerge, and if you can't capture them, you'll lose consistency. But at the same time, if you over-index on consistency, you tend to block teams on experimentation. And so that's sort of a, a related problem space for us. Yeah, it's interesting how that idea of constraints as the creation of consistency or the application of consistency, and also that idea of rigid constraints inhibiting creativity, it's a theme sort of throughout the design systems concept, right? Because we need to have systems that help us scale. Like, you know, choosing 64 million different colors is not practical for every single design decision. But also only choosing between two may be equally impractical. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of, you know, when we first started doing or working on our system, you know, everybody does like a color audit, right? And you, you see, oh, here's 20 different values of gray, like what are we doing? But it, it's so funny that it sort of circles back around now where if it's done intentionally, if you were to audit a site with this sort of dynamic palette in place, you might get back 20 different values of gray again, but it's intentional this time, so it's correct. It wasn't created with the eyedropper tool. It was created with science. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Put a model in place that can scale. I, I think that's a more long-term solution. I think about you know, that sort of dual mandate idea. It's like, how do you accommodate faster rates of change? How do you support experimentation and curiosity? Have a system that encourages flexibility of use and then at the same time encourage slower rates of change, protect things like core brand identity make it predictable, make it maintainable, and reinforce a brand language over time. So I think it's also interesting because you've tried to inject a fair amount of the REI culture into this as well, where you know y'all are cooperative. There's a lot of your culture that is about contributions. And trying to think about how that applies to your design system, I think that First of all, it's amazing that you consider this as a part of like the values you're injecting into these decisions. But I'd also be curious to explore like what does that look like when you think about 
like REI the cooperative and how that applies to the systems that you're creating. Yeah, it's sort of a, an interesting idea, right? Like, how can our business model at a macro level, like as a consumer cooperative, what can we sort of borrow from that in terms of building a system that might function the same way? Uh, like, what does a design system builder cooperative look like? I think that's an interesting sort of space that doesn't have an easy answer, but we're exploring it right now. I think about the fact that we see the system as owned by the consuming teams and how do we provide the right sort of on-ramps for them to put their hand on the scale where and when they feel that there's value to do so. So give me a practical idea of what that looks like. You view ownership as something that is much more last mile where you're in service to those then product owners. But what does that really mean in terms of the practical contribution to the system? It's a hard problem because it introduces risk, right? It's very easy for the design function to drop a bunch of assets into Figma and say, add this to the system. It's very hard on the engineering side to say, we'll happily accept the debt of maintaining this. There's a fine balance there, but we've had some successes. And we hope to use those as examples for how to scale it out more broadly. But I think the important thing for us thus far has been to highlight the successes of what those initial contributions have been, and then use that as a model for showing other teams of this is what good looks like when it comes to contributing back to the system, and then reinforcing that. And do folks between both disciplines really recognize that and hold that with that same degree of reverence? Like, Do you find that that model is generally accepted as a part of the culture of contribution or governance inside of the organization? I think it's harder for me to speak to on the engineering side. Designers are generally very open to the idea of contribution, but everybody's busy, right? So how do you encourage contribution to the system? How can you show what a good contribution looks like as an example? And how do you provide the right incentives for someone to participate in the first place? You know, there, there are plenty of incentives for consumers to adopt the system, but I see very limited discussion around what sort of incentives are in place to help people participate in the first place when teams have their own goals and their own work to do. And how do you drive the progress of the system from a consumer contribution angle? I think that's a hard problem. Yeah, it's interesting. At Knapsack, we talk a lot about adoption because that's what everybody has decided is the correlation metric for design system success. But usually when we're actually doing an implementation of Knapsack, we talk about like what does the contribution model look like for the system? Because that inherently does two things. It helps with the cross-disciplinary nature of the creation of systems. You know, systems that just serve design or just serve engineering or just serve product, they tend to be of less value than things that serve the entire process. And that is the second aspect to it. By having contributors, you innately have people that have adopted the system. <laughs> and so that contribution allows for that like democratization between disciplines and also allows pretty much anybody to leave it better than they found it. And sort of baking in that philosophical idea of cooperation and cooperativeness, I think that's a really awesome way to sort of foster that desire to collaborate. Yeah, I mean, this idea of cooperative by design, I mean, it's on the homepage of our documentation site. And, you know, playing around with that concept has been pretty powerful and sort of interesting at times. I mentioned incentives 
for contribution and you know the system can't assign people to work on these problems and so how do you pull from maybe altruism of contributors we sort of experimented with this idea of okay well if you contribute to the system the system will plant trees on your behalf and so that's been an experiment that we've we've run and you know we have like 5000 trees that we've helped uh, plant in in various areas through contributions and I, I think that's pretty cool it's like a passive effect of the system growing you know the system grows we grow trees that's amazing <laughs> and talk about a crossover from like a digital world to a physical one you know having that tangible effect be really present through contribution that's super cool yeah it's really exciting and you know it's very rei yeah, I mean, I love the living of the culture through your systems. I think that's special. It's one of those things where we like we all talk a lot about design principles and the purposes of design systems, but we often don't connect them deeply to our values and our cultures as, as an organization. And I love how connected you all are to it. Yeah, I mean, I love that you you brought that up, you know, connected in principles. It sort of ties into our approach of our documentation site we have this principle of adjacency and proximity. Like how, how can you put things together in a way that is more useful and meaningful? And that's sort of the next step for our documentation platform is as sort of a a remote first company now, how can you start to put the system parts and pieces, the UI decisions next to things like brand decisions, brand language next to things like, research and content strategy so that the entire package can be most useful for the people building digital experiences. I love the way you think about it across lots of different disciplines, but also different facets of the discipline. I think that people don't often put UX research inside of their design system. And I think that probably they should, much like how you know content and design systems is something that, that we've talked about on the podcast a couple of times, but I have seen very few enterprise design systems that have a strong content lean anywhere inside of that. And uh, I think it's great to have this idea of like everything everywhere all at once, but also in a way that is organized and valuable more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, exactly. And you know, ultimately, I, I want all the, the decisions associated with building quality digital experiences as close in, to a central source of truth as possible. And like we're starting with UI because that's probably the hardest thing to do because there's design and code parity to manage and maintain. But alongside those decisions are research decisions, content decisions that also come into play. And putting those things together ultimately is, is going to be more useful to people trying to put those parts and pieces together to come up with a holistic experience. It does come back to brand a lot as well, right? Where what's the, not just expression of the brand, but where does the stewardship and and maintenance of that digital brand live? And this is why, at least in my opinion, design systems are fundamentally linked to brand and that the most successful design systems that I've seen are the ones that are closest to the brand. All of those decision-making pieces that align to that central source of truth, that expression, are fundamentally brand choices. And they're they're all about like, how are we going to express this via components or tokens or you know assembled prototypes in a design system, whatever that looks like. It's all about like, how do I lay out an intention and then how do I showcase the expression of that intention in a digital product? And it has limitations because most design systems aren't 
asset management solutions. Most design systems don't have a lot to do with physical branding in a physical space, but a lot of it is pretty fundamentally tied to the way that we express ourselves in digital. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I think that relationship between brand and design system can be strengthened by putting those sort of decisions close together. And you know, the system has no intention of maintaining control of that information. We're more interested in being the distribution network of that information. And sort of the analogy that I've used in the past is like it, it's really expensive to build a rail network, right? But it's really cheap to ship freight on rail. And you know, it's in the same way, it's expensive to build these systems, but your ability to deliver brand decisions efficiently and quickly to as many people as possible 24 hours a day through a documentation platform, that's useful. And that's the other value that, that we're bringing here is the network effect of these brand decisions. So yeah, it's exciting. So when you think about the work that you've done in brand right now, this expression of this centralized source of truth, what has been that evolution that you've seen? Because I know that you've changed a lot of your approaches and specifically things like how to be more dynamic, but what else has changed? Yeah, I think what we've sort of seen in this year in particular is largely a, a leadership organization that has said, ooh, you know, system has been successful to a degree. And we want more of that. And we think that there's opportunity for the system to have more of an opinion on UI expression. Thus far, we've been pretty neutral. You know, here's our parts and pieces, use them as you want. But we think that we can drive better brand consistency by having a more opinionated point of view on what does more complex UI look like. And we're sort of at the point where we're trying to think about like, how do you maintain separation of concerns between small parts and pieces and large ones? Where do those things live? And you know, how can you make them work with all the things that we've already talked about? So you have a bunch of basic stuff that was pretty unopinionated. And the expression of those is relatively easy because it's very encapsulated, right? Those things sort of exist and you can remix them or, or do with them what you will. And you're now in a place where maybe the the extensibility matters a little bit more than the encapsulation where you're trying to think about like, okay, you know, these have an opinion, they have a, a set of constraints that aren't as freeform as the components and UI patterns you were creating earlier. But you want to be able to use them in a wide variety of places still and still apply the same strategies and other systems to them. Is that a fair representation? Yeah, and, you know, the the scope of some of the more complex UI isn't going to be as broad as those smaller parts and pieces, but we're sort of looking at it through a similar efficiency lens where is there different types of efficiency to be had by having more complex UI in this, provided by the system? And maybe that means removing certain conversations from stakeholders and consuming teams. So if the system says, here's a lead example, you know, top of page experience that we're going to provide, that gives various stakeholders something to point to as reference and say, this is our current best practice. We should use this from an efficiency standpoint. And if not, if there's a business justification for not doing that for your specific context, we'll make that business case. You're almost used as a mechanism then to apply constraints about business decision-making 
and less about like the technical decision making of, of the componentry itself. It wouldn't be something like, hey, we have this thing that is uh, has enforced technical limitations. It's like, hey, we have a shopping cart experience, and that shopping cart experience should be the same unless you're buying something that fundamentally doesn't belong in a shopping cart. And that would represent sort of the process whereby you have that opinionated stance on what that experience should look like and how it should be used. Yeah, exactly. And you know, one of the questions to answer for us is how far does design and code parity exist in a space like that? There are very real technical constraints that limit us from here's you're ready to make code for that circumstance and you know, the range in which we can distribute that is is more limited. My personal belief is that we're going to look at design and code parity with the same sort of like kind of flippant attitude we look towards pixel perfection today, where we had this era where that really, really mattered to us. And I think that that era is slowly slipping away, where we start to say that like design is one expression that has its own limitations because design tools are innately an abstraction and they're not going to function the same way as the medium that something's destined for. But they are really good at rapidly iterating and showcasing intent. Whereas like the actual implementation of something, if you're only doing what exists in a design file in Figma, you're limiting your expression in that medium. You're limiting the value of the web or of you know a native app or something like that because you can do things in that medium that you just can't do in a, a design abstraction. And so I, I definitely see that as on its way out. Yeah, it, it's sort of like accommodating those faster rates of change, right? How, how do you enable flexibility of use and while at the same time constrain the parts and pieces that you really want to lock down that, that should have that slower rate of change. Well, Jay, I want to thank you for being on. Super informative, really interesting to get such a detailed and, and nuanced take on the idea of consistency and how it gets expressed across an organization. And we touched on a lot of things today. So I just want to say I really appreciate the breadth of knowledge and the thoughtfulness. Yeah, thanks so much. Super excited to talk through some of these concepts and I hope to see them sort of play out on our on our documentation site over time. This has been the Design Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Strahl. Thanks. Have a great day, everybody. That's all for today. This has been another episode of the Design Systems Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or a topic you'd like to know more about, find us on Twitter at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you with show ideas, recommendations, questions, or comments. As always, this pod is brought to you by Knapsack. You can check us out at knapsack.cloud. Have a great day.